Yes, we did have a wonderful time last Sunday afternoon at the baptisms and talked to somebody who was there. It was just a glorious afternoon of sharing and singing and fellowship. And perhaps this stirs your own thoughts. Perhaps you've not yet obeyed the Lord by going through the waters of baptism. Come and see us. We can always plan another baptism service. We may not do it at the river in December, but we'll find a more amenable time when we can do it. But do it at a time when it's, it's amenable and convenient for all of us, but, but please let us, let us know. Uh, just a reminder, this would be a good time, if you're not already, uh, to make sure your cell phones are turned off or turned to silent so we don't have interruptions uh, during the service. Keep in mind that we are live streaming the service. Uh, this week, I was exposed, if you will, to the latest survey by Ligonier Ministries that shows the state of the church in the United States. And it's rough. It's rough. What self-professing evangelicals believe is far short of what is the biblical value, the biblical truth of the gospel. And, and we need to continue to remind ourselves, what is the gospel? What is it that we believe? And so in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate again Reformation Sunday, affirming those foundational gospel truths that brought the church back to the gospel, that set, apart a, set about a spiritual revolution that spread throughout Europe and around the world, and we are the beneficiaries of that spiritual revolution, and so we need to continue to be sharp in what it is that we believe, and so you can look forward to that. We'll do it a little differently than we've done it in the past if you have been with us on Reformation Sunday, but we will affirm those biblical truths that continue to strengthen the church and cause the church to go forward. I want to thank the Gideons for being with us this morning, and my own testimony is the Word of God that was instrumental in me coming to Christ. I won't share the, the whole story of it, but it was involved in reading the Scriptures for months out of hunger that my heart was opened and awakened to the need of Christ and heard the Gospel and, and came to Christ. And it just had a, an affection, a fondness, a depth of love for the Word of God ever since. And so I appreciate putting the Word of God in people's hands. And so if we can, let's, let's pray uh, and help the Gideons get the Word out. Well, Hudson Taylor was one of the pioneer missionaries of the modern missionary movement. He was an experienced servant himself, having served a number of years in foreign service, and so he was good at discerning those who were suitable for cross-cultural service to Christ. He became the director of China Inland Mission, and he would interview candidates for the mission field. And on one occasion, he met with a group of applicants to determine their motivations for service, and he asked the question, and why do you wish to go as a foreign missionary? And he would hear different responses. One would say, I want to go because Christ has commanded us to take the gospel to all the world. Another said, I want to go because millions are perishing without Christ. Others gave different answers. And Hudson Taylor said this, all of these motives, however good, will fail you in times of trials, testings, tribulations, and death. There is what but one motive, there is but one motive that will sustain you in trial and testing, namely the love of Christ. Because Christ has loved us, we love him. And it's out of that motivation to glorify him that we are released to go out into the world to preach the gospel. As we look at the mission and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shows us what divine love looks like. And he manifested it in his service to the Lord. 
as he carries out his ministry of teaching and preaching and healing, he displayed what love looks like for those who've been born again by the Spirit of God. His love for the Father who sent him, compassion for the people to whom he came, and the fact that he was to be the Redeemer, the Savior, the King who brought in the kingdom of heaven and is what impassioned his ministry. For several weeks, we've been looking at some of the miracles that Jesus performed during his time in Galilee as we go continue in our sermon series in the gospel according to Matthew. And with each miracle that he performs, he displays both his compassion and his authority. And the number of those we see that are following him, maybe out of curiosity, maybe out of interest, maybe just out of a show, maybe because of becoming believers, the number of those following him is growing, but at the same time, so is the opposition that is growing from the religious leaders whose influence is threatened by the presence and power of this itinerant preacher. Until now, as we've gone through the first several chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been doing the works of the kingdom of heaven, more or less, by himself. Those that are following him observe what he is doing, but they're not yet engaged in the work of ministry. And we've reached a point now in the Gospel of Matthew where that will begin to change as Jesus will draw our attention to the great spiritual needs in the world and to the necessity of his people to be mobilized and to go out and proclaim his glory for the nations. This, pas this passage will transition us. Matthew has written a brilliant piece of literature, and he transitions us from one phase to the next and gets us prepared. And we're in a transition phase this morning in the text that we will look at. Uh, we'll look at how Jesus not only shows the need, but what he will do in response as he chooses his servants to go out. So I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning, the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And if you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And the inspired and holy and true word of God says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word, we recognize that we now are under its authority. So would you be our teacher this morning? Father, the temptation is for us to bring distractions and opposing thoughts as we come in this morning. Would you be the one that banishes them? Would you give us hearts that are open and eyes to see and ears that are open so that we might hear from you through your holy word? Come and teach us this morning as your spirit guides us. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. For those of you joining us online this morning, good morning. Thank you for being with us. 
It's good to have you join us, as it were, at the throne of grace as we study the Word of God together. And I hope you already have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9 as we go through it together. For we who are here, I encourage you to take your bulletins out. You can follow along in the sermon outline in the bulletin. Or we hope you have your app already downloaded on your phone. You can take notes right on your app and have them with you as you go out throughout the week. So that's another opportunity as well. And hopefully all of us have taken that opportunity to put the app on our phone to be kept up to date with what's happening in our church. The first major point we look at this morning is Christ's missionary compassion. Christ's missionary compassion. As Matthew is organizing the material that he has on Jesus, he arranges it in sections to present the life and message of the Messiah. And in that organization, we see that what we have here at the end of Matthew chapter 9 really serves as a bookend for a section that began in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. If you read chapter 4, verses 23 and 25, and then you read chapter 9, verse 35, you see that there's a summary and repetition of what's going on. Matthew has organized it in such a way that we get a view of what Jesus was doing in Galilee and that he was the true prophet who was to come. He's the one who gave the proper understanding of the law and the righteousness that comes with the new covenant. He is the Messiah who has come to heal and forgive and show compassion. And so over these five chapters, we've seen that Jesus is the one who has authority. He has authority over disease, authority over demons, authority over nature, authority over the law, authority over sin and forgiveness. He helps us to understand what the law and the prophets were saying and how they point to their ultimate fulfillment in him. And then he teaches us in his Sermon on the Mount what life looks like for those who are following him as Lord and Savior in the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven, which is for us today. It teaches us how to live in the midst of a lawless and hostile world. Those who build their lives on Christ, we are told, will survive the onslaught of the world and the coming judgments of God because they are secure in the one who is the solid rock. In many ways, we could say that if we look at Christ's missionary compassion, that he was the ultimate missionary. The term missionary simply means sent one. And Jesus left the glories of heaven to show the world what love and truth look like. He did that primarily for the glory of the Father. But he also did it because of great love for those he came to save. And he shows this love and his passion for the kingdom. His passion for the kingdom. Our text says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So as we've been seeing Jesus over these last several chapters in his threefold ministry of teaching and preaching and performing miracles, he's experienced a number of great victories, if you will. He has shown his power, but he has also experienced great opposition. And yet, he kept on going. He kept on going in spite of this opposition. In chapter 9, verse 34, in what would be a low point for his enemies, they even accused him of being under the influence of the prince of demons. Yet in verse 35, he persists. He continues on moving through Galilee and in the rest of his ministry. He was tough in a way that he needed to be tough. He was committed 
He had full resolve that he would carry out the ministry because he knew why he had come, who had sent him, and what he was called to do. And he would do whatever the Father had sent him to do, whatever the cost. Humanly speaking, he stayed at his post until the job was complete. But my friends, he sends us out as well. And if we are in Christ, we have the same mandate to go out and proclaim his glories among the nations. And we will face opposition, but we are called to stay at our posts until we have finished our task. As we've seen over these several chapters in Matthew 5 to 9, Jesus is moving throughout Galilee, many places, one to the other. He's an itinerant preacher. He's ministering to people, and he says even at times he had no place to lay his head. And so as we look at the summary found here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we see that Jesus went to places both big and small. He spoke in the synagogues, the center of Jewish life in the first century. He went to the cities where, of course, the crowds would gather. He went to the villages where the numbers would be smaller. And it is estimated that during that time, or at that time, there were probably 200 villages and cities in the region of Galilee. Now, how many of them he had gotten to by the time we have this account, we don't know. But we know that wherever he went, he taught about the kingdom of heaven. He taught about the main subject of that kingdom over which he is king. He taught about the Beatitudes, what it looked like to be a redeemed people. Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize their need of a Savior. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be merciful to others and receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. He talked about what the true nature of fasting is and why we fast and when we fast and how we fast and how we pray. He talked about properly channeling the, the human passions we have so that we avoid the snares of lust and anger. He's taught on marriage and how to deal with others, both those that are with us and those that oppose us. He's taught us how to pray. He's taught us what the rightful foundation is for Christian living. And as he is preaching, we see that he is also healing. We see that he is also teaching. He is showing great love. As he came as the Messiah, he is starting to roll back the effects of sin to show that this is God's saving mission for the world through him. He's rolling back the effects of man's rebellion against God, the fall of sin that has affected all of us. And as the true and better Adam, he came to redeem all that was lost in Adam. And that, that, that program will continue and it will be manifested more and more until one day we see it in fullness in the new heavens and the new earth where our broken relationships with each other, our broken relationships with the earth, our broken relationships with God will all be repaired and we will live in perfect harmony forever and ever. And as he showed his passion for the kingdom of heaven, he also showed his compassion for the people. Our text goes on and says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was surrounded by people wherever he went. But you notice it didn't disturb him because he knows that people are created in the image of God. And as the agent of creation through whom all things were created, he knows that man ultimately is, is the crown of that creation because man alone bears the image of God. And so he's showing us that the people 
have more importance and value than anything else in creation. In creation, of course, God has the ultimate value, the ultimate purpose. We turn to him. But people are important to Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that. That they're not obstacles in the way. They're not enemies to overcome. They're created in the image of God who themselves have succumbed to the the wiles of the enemy who are sinful and rebellious, but they too need to hear about the gospel. And I'm reminded today as I look at the internet (laughs) and how there's an increase in the coarseness of our language, the harshness of our attitudes one against another, the quickness by which we judge and condemn and impugn people we don't even see or know. And where anger seems to be on the rise as we think we're somehow entitled to all kind of things. And ultimately, people are created in the image of God. And we were once what they are now. Lost, away from Christ, without hope and without God. And we needed to hear the gospel. And so did these folks. So as Jesus goes about his ministry, he sees a great need. The text tells us that he saw the crowds. And he saw the masses wherever he went. But we know, because we've already looked through the first several chapters of Matthew, he did more than just see them. He touched them. He spoke with them. He walked with them. Jesus, the Son of God, left the comforts of heaven to come and live with people. He saw their hurts. He experienced their tears. He entered into their pain. He taught with clarity and passion, with urgency and conviction. And so the question that I have for you is, how do we see people as we move around in our area, as we go about our day-to-day business? Do we see people in need of a Savior? Or do we see them some other way? As Jesus ministered, we see the reaction of the crowds themselves. They are astonished. They're marveled at his teachings. Now these crowds become the object of his concern. As he sees their true condition, he has compassion for them. This is an interesting word. We like to say that that my heart hurts for you. But literally here it is saying, my my guts feel for you. Feeling it from the inward depths of our being. He had compassion on them with deep longings, deep wounds, and deep needs. And his heart, his being goes out to them. Why? Why? Because they're harassed and helpless. The word for harassed is a graphic one. It means to be flayed. It's like, it's like having been torn by the wolves, the teeth and claws of the wolves that are tearing at them. But also, as they go through life, they're being torn by the, the thorns and thistles of the ground. These sheep are being torn by the realities of life. They're harassed. And they're helpless. Which means, literally, they've been thrown to the ground without any way of getting up. Think of what these sheep, these masses of people have been hearing throughout their lives. Keep the law. Keep the law. Keep the law. Obey the sacrifices. Obey the interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees. You're not keeping up. Keep going. More sacrifices. More law. More doing, 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 doing. And the judgment and the condemnation builds up in their own hearts as they realize they can't. And then at the same time, they're hearing, the Romans have authority over you. Pay your taxes. Obey them. Submit to them. You're subservient to them. And so in both the religious and civil realms, 
They're forced to submit to those who are unruly, unwise, and ungodly. They truly are helpless. They're hurt. They need someone to come and lift them out of the moral morass of the day. They're beaten down by religious legalism, by political oppression, by economic exploitation. Of course, we know the root problem of all of that is sin. That man is inherently sinful, deeply sinful, far more sinful than he ever imagines himself to be. And that sin has devastating effects on us. But Jesus has compassion. Because he knows. That's why he came. Remember the first part of the Gospel of Matthew. He came to save his people from their sins. From their sins and all of its effects. And so his compassion, he's feeling it deeply from inside. The compassion he has for the people, he looks and sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. This is a subtle way, but a direct way of saying that the leaders in Israel have failed. They've not protected or provided for the people. They've imposed rules and regulations and laws to follow that were not directly from the law itself, but were simply their added interpretation, their added human righteousness that these people were to fulfill. And so those that would be hearing this expression, sheep without a shepherd, would probably be reminded of several Old Testament images where God compared himself to a shepherd and his people as sheep. You might think of example of Moses as he is nearing the end of his life and he's preparing the people as they're getting ready to cross over into the land of promise. He pleads with the Lord to raise up a man so that they, the people, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. In 1 Kings 22, 17, the prophet Micaiah, who was the, one of the remaining faithful prophets, is called before the wicked king Ahab to give a prophecy on behalf of the king and on behalf of the false prophets. And Micaiah, in an act of boldness, refuses to go along with them. And so he gives them their prophecy and he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. He says, Ahab, you pursue this, it will be in destruction. Perhaps one of the clearest examples we see of this sheep and shepherd metaphor is seen in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 34 where God goes into great detail rebuking the religious leaders who have used the sheep for their own gain instead of leading them in the ways of the Lord. He calls them ravenous wolves instead of gentle shepherds. And in an amazing statement, I encourage you to read it later, in verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, it is Yahweh who says, I will come, I will search for the sheep, and I will be their shepherd. And that is full of messianic overtones as we prepare, as the, the people prepare for who would be this shepherd of God. King David himself said that the Lord is my shepherd, and when we realize that that was his profession before he became a king, he was a shepherd. He knows what a sheep needs from a shepherd. Then there's a people going into exile. 39 chapters in Isaiah, God is saying, I'm going to punish you because you've been rebellious, you've been against me, you've not obeyed me, I'm sending you off into exile. And then the first words in chapter 40 says, comfort, comfort my people. And in this amazing statement in Isaiah 40, God says, I will be a shepherd for my people. And so all of these longings, all of these promises were fulfilled when God sent his son to be the good shepherd of his people. 
And Jesus seized upon this promise when he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus sees the sheep, people are like sheep. He sees their great needs and he says, I've come to meet them. They need a leader who will bind up their wounds, who will restore them, forgive their sins, guide them in the path of righteousness. But these leaders of Israel have failed. And when we get to chapter 23, he is going to really let them have it. And he says, I am the good shepherd. He came to take care of the sheep. He says very clearly in John chapter 10, my sheep know me and I know them. I know them by name. They hear my voice and they come to me. And he's full of compassion for his sheep. My friends, this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your good shepherd, he is taking care of you. He knows what you are facing. He knows the challenges that are before you. And he is tenderly coming alongside and saying, continue to follow me because I know the path that you should take. So after having passion for the kingdom, for, uh, compassion for the people, Passion for the kingdom, compassion for the people. We now see his prayer for the harvest. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, there's a lot of divine ownership in here. We see it's his disciples. It's his sheep. It's all his. He's the one that's in control. But you notice he's the one that's in control, and yet he commands his followers to pray. The harvest is plentiful, he said. That means there's a lot of work to do. It's already the harvest, in a sense, because the Lord knows those who are his, and the harvest is ready to come in, but where are the laborers to go and bring them in? Because humanly speaking, it's just Jesus at this point. He has started the messianic ministry. Yes, there was John the Baptist who said he would come. But now Jesus, is, in a sense, is, is doing it on his own. And yes, he was God. And we might say, well, he can take care of all of it. But he was also human, fully human. And in his incarnation was limited to be in one place at one time in his humanity. He says the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. At this point, the harvest is a positive thing. These are those that will come and believe in Christ. They will follow him. And it's similar to what we see in John chapter 4, which says the, the fields are white and the harvest. It's time. Roll up your sleeves. Get in the tractor. Get out the hose. Get out there and get the harvest is ready to come in. But the laborers are few. And so Jesus says, pray. Pray earnestly means with great passion with great emotion with great conviction as we contemplate the lost state of those outside of christ when's the last time we have prayed with great appeal and desire and emotion that god would send laborers to the lost but here we're to pray earnestly so let me ask the question a different way is it the desire of your heart that god in all of the glory that he is due to all the nations and all the peoples. Yes, that is our desire. How do we help, as it were, bring that about? We pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field so that God's people come home. I sometimes wonder 
I don't think we would ever be so bold as to say it out loud. But our actions kind of betray us that sometimes we look at prayer as kind of the last resort when it really should be our first weapon. We're so used to doing, doing, doing. I got to do, what can I do? What can I contribute? How can I help? How can I solve the problem? How can I be a mini savior of what's going on? That we forget that ultimately it's up to God. So prayer, my friends, should always be our first impulse and not our last option. Think about this. Prayer is communication with the eternal one. Prayer is communication with the one who created space and time. Prayer is communication with he who alone can actually get the job done, can actually solve the problem. So to paraphrase the late A.W. Tozer, prayer does not prepare us for the major work. Prayer is the major work. So I have to think of myself, okay, I know that when I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. So let's do the balance sheet here. Which one of us do you think is going to be more effective in getting the work done? Prayer should always be our first impulse and not our last option. Jesus said to pray to the Lord to send out laborers. He is in control. It is his harvest. He's the one who sends. He's the one who calls. And so he is calling us, as Jesus says, all throughout the gospel, follow me to a new lifestyle. Follow me to the kingdom of heaven. Follow me in this new path of righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the harvest fields then are not for the lazy. They're not for the tourists. They're not for the experience seeker. They're not for those who just want to check something off their bucket list. It is for all who know that they have been bought by Jesus Christ and are his servants. To say, okay, Lord, you've called me. Let's go wherever it might be. It's his harvest. And if we, he has purchased us, if you'll tip us upside down and look at what's printed on the bottom of my foot, it says, made in heaven, purchased by Christ. It's a harvest that must be gathered in. The Lord knows those who are his, but the faith comes by hearing. So we must be ready to be sent in order to preach the gospel and declare the works of God. But ultimately, it's because we love him and we want him to be glorified that that is our motivation because ultimately we're dependent on him. So let's look at a few of the examples that it is his harvest. Psalm 27, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's his but he wants us to be doing what he has called us to do. Isaiah 55, 11. We have the Gideons this morning. You're going to appreciate this one. It says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We can trust God's word. So let's go out and share it. Let's proclaim it. Let's give it to others. Let's obey it. Let's put our will and our heart and our mind and our decision-making under it so that he is truly Lord. He's sending out laborers to the harvest. And a couple of weeks ago, we had the privilege of having a mini missionary conference. And we just need to be reminded of what the harvest fields might look like today. There are over 8 billion people living on planet Earth. 
Some say as high as 8.3 billion. And over 3.8 billion of them have no gospel witness living among them. Not even knowing the name of Jesus Christ. Now we rejoice that the church is growing because Jesus promised it would. It will prevail. It will continue to grow. But we also just need to recognize that as fast as the church is growing, the number of non-believers is growing ever faster. And for every second that passes in the world, two people pass into eternity. 157,000 people every day, a number that is seven times larger than the official population of Orville. So why? Why do we pray? Because the harvest is there. There's a need for people to go out. Now, you'll notice in the foyer as you go out in our missionary display, we have our goal as a church of every church, which is to make disciples of all nations. And on that board, there are four action points. Pray, give, send, go. And all of us find ourselves somewhere on that continuum. This is something that all of us are to be part of. We don't go out of a sense of guilt. Don't ever give or go or do anything out of a sense of guilt. You've been set free in Christ. Don't ever go out of a sense of fear or drudgery or resignation that somehow, I just got to do it. Because as soon as it gets difficult, you'll stop doing it. Take heart of what we are doing. Take a look at what we are doing. Is it because of our motivation of the love of God? His love for us, which manifests itself in our love for him that will cause us to go out. And so we go and proclaim, whether near or far, because of that great love. What a privilege we have to declare the cure to the greatest need that exists in human history. Jesus came, showed his love purchased us with his blood, set us apart for service of the kingdom of God, did this all for the glory of God. On a scale of 1 to 10 this morning, my friends, how much do you share Christ's missionary passion for the world? Are there things that you need to stop doing that are draining time and energy and resources away from the focus on Christ and all his glory and all his work so that the world will hear about it. How are we looking at the crowds that are all around us? So as we see Christ's missionary compassion, briefly and quickly we see Christ's missionary calling. Notice that Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, if we look at the parallel accounts of this story in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus puts into practice his very own command because he goes up on the mountain and spends the night in prayer. So he said we're to pray, then he models for us to pray, and then he responds. And then he calls the ones who will play a key role in the church that Jesus came to build and over which even the gates of hell will not prevail. He called his disciples. He called the 12. And he called to him his 12 disciples. Now, there were certainly more than 12 that were present. So he specifically chose these 12. And there's great symbolism and significance in this number 12. 
Jesus is showing that there is an intentionality in showing the continuity of God's promises to his people under the old covenant and his promises to God's people under the new covenant. He didn't randomly choose 12. He's showing that he is the head of a new covenant that is leading a people in a new exodus out of sin and towards eternal life because he knows he is the true son of Abraham, the ultimate seed of Abraham. In verse 2, they're called the 12 uh, 12 apostles. And we'll look at that. And Jesus is going to show us how the plan of God is going to unfold. And so immediately after he calls the 12, what does he do? He says, go off to the lost sheep of Israel. And they do. They go off to the lost sheep of Israel. But then they pivot. And it's not just to the lost sheep of Israel. It is also to the Gentiles. And so what, they, what is there is this fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that there would be an ultimate son who would be a blessing to all the nations. And the Apostle Paul, himself a Jew, writes to the Galatian believers and to the Ro- believers in Rome and says that this is that. This is the fulfillment of the promise given to Isaiah, to, the Jew fir- uh, to, to Abraham, to the Jew first. Not to the Jew only, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And it'll show up again at the end of the gospel when he sends us out to make disciples of all nations. And so he sends out these 12 to proclaim the glories of God, announce the kingdom of heaven, to perform the miracles that Jesus did. And as they do, he sends them out with divine power. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, he gave them authority. There's an implicit statement of his own divinity. This was the authority he had to give. Of course, it was authority he had received from the Father, but we know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit always work in perfect harmony with one another, never against each other. And so with this divine authority, he gives it to his apostles and says, go out. And we understand authority then is rightful power given for its intended purposes. It is not inherent power to the apostles. It is derived authority. It is received authority. It is Jesus' authority. But with that authority, they are called to cast out unclean spirits. This is the only time that Matthew uses this particular phrase, unclean. Think in the whole overall context where he's been dealing with people who are unclean that are now clean. People who are away from the tabernacle and the temple but now can come because they've been made clean. Now, of course, these unclean spirits are demons. They're wicked. They're unholy. But Jesus is able to set free those who have been held in bondage by sin and all of its effects. We're reminded then that spiritual warfare is a reality in the Christian life. It certainly was a reality in the life of Christ. And it has been a reality throughout church history. It is a reality in our lives today. John G. Patton was a missionary to the South Sea Islands, today known as New Eberbees. He was a pioneer missionary in that era. He often lived in danger. He worked among hostile aborigines who had never heard the gospel. And he faced constant opposition from the local leaders. He was there to translate the scriptures into their languages, to bring the gospel to them, to proclaim Christ in this completely at that time unreached group. And he faced spiritual opposition. And at one time, there were three witch doctors 
claiming to have the power of death, who publicly declared their intentions to kill Patton with their sorcery before next Sunday. So to carry out their threat, they said they needed some food that had been partially eaten by Patton. Patton intentionally bit into three plums, gave them to them, who said they were going to plot his death. And on Sunday morning, John G. Patton entered the village with a smile on his face and a spring in his step. The people looked at each other in amazement, thinking that it couldn't possibly be him because their sacred men admitted that they had tried by all of their evil incantations to kill him. When asked why they had failed, they said this, that the missionary was a sacred man like themselves, but that his God was stronger than theirs. John Patton didn't do that out of arrogance. He did that because he knew who he was. He knew, he knew who had sent him, and he knew what he was called to do. And he knew his truth, that God's truth, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. After this demonic encounter, George G. Patton's influence grew, and he soon had the privilege of leading many of the villagers to the Lord. The scriptures eventually did get translated into those languages. Churches were planted. Jesus called the 12. He sent them out with divine power to proclaim his message. He does the same today. He fills us with his spirit and says, go and proclaim my glories among the nations with divine results happening. And to heal every disease and every affliction. I think a better translation would be here, all types of disease and affliction. Jesus sent these men out to do what he did, to serve in his power. And that same Lord sends us out in that same power to serve him and his purposes. Therefore, if we know whose we are, and who he is, and what he has sent us to do, we don't need to waste our time insisting on just getting our own way all the time, or raising our voices to pressure others into what they may not want to do, or claiming some inherent right to be involved. No, we just go out with a calm and determined resolve, knowing that we go out in the authority of Christ, and that's enough. We have his authority, and we have his word. So he called the 12, whom we know as the 12 apostles. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Now we'll get to the names in just a moment, but this is the only time I could find in the Gospels where these words are found together, the 12 apostles. You often see the 12, a reference to the 12, or a reference to the apostles. But here it's the 12 apostles. They've been commissioned by the Lord to carry out the work of Jesus after he returns to heaven. And the apostles are of importance. Because we see in Ephesians 2 and Revelation 20 that it's the apostles who are called the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ the cornerstone. It's not built on these men. It's built on the message and the truth that they proclaimed with Christ being the cornerstone. And so we honor that apostolic faith because that is the apostolic faith and truth that we continue to preach today. It was that apostolic faith and truth that the reformers brought back to the church. It is that apostolic faith and truth that we continue to preach because we have this word. So here they are called apostles. It comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means sent one. Now that's from the Greek, 
the Latin term is missionary, which also means sent one. And in an interesting note, this is just, you know, I was a long-time Bible teacher in an academic setting, and so I like these different details that come up. But do you know who the greatest apostle is in the Word of God? It is Jesus himself, who is called the great apostle in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. He was the ultimate sent one, and he ultimately sends us out to go and proclaim his glories among the nations. And so we get to the names of the twelve. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we have six pairs of names listed here, which kind of fits, because later on we're going to see that Jesus will send them out two by two. Is he already preparing them? Maybe. But he's given us the names. He spent all night praying to the Father, and the Father led him, and these are the 12 that he chose. We've already heard the story of five, right? Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. We've heard about their story in Matthew. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the other seven. Church history is full of tradition and supposition, but we just have to leave it at that. We'll just go by what the scriptures clearly tell us. We know that at least four of them were fishermen. We know that one was a tax collector. What the other ones were, we may not know. I find it interesting, some of the, par the pairs, though. You have uh, Thomas the Doubter with Matthew the tax collector. Matthew get, lists his profession here. I find that interesting. He's amazed that he's in. He knows the lifestyle that he led. He knows the profession that he had. He knows the impact he had on his people. He says, even me, the wicked, evil tax collector. Who betrayed my people i'm in i find great humility in that that he recognizes who he is and from what he has been redeemed when we look at the list of the 12 peter's always listed first judas is always listed last there are reasons for that <laughs> peter seems to be the spokesman he seems to be a first among equals but not a first over equals and he has a role to play that we'll see later in Matthew and we see in the book of Acts. But ultimately, they're, they're just a collegial group of men working together, serving the Lord, proclaiming the faith that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to them in the truth of his word. But what I find interesting is that for the most part, these men started out in obscurity. And they finished in obscurity. They kept pointing people to Jesus Christ. That's good news for us today because we see that God chose ordinary men to carry out an extraordinary mission in his power. It gives hope for people like us that God has a place for us of service in his kingdom to be a spokesman for him and wherever we are near and far because if we know Christ, we know people who don't know Christ and we can be the ones who can introduce them to Christ. And so as we wrap up our message this morning we see that jesus has all authority it's his harvest he's working with the father raising up his people to send it out to the harvest it is his kingdom that's being proclaimed he saw the masses he prayed for the father to meet the needs he called men chose men they responded and when he calls us we need to respond as well each of us has a role to play but we have the great joy because of the love of God poured out in our hearts to be declaring his glories 
among the nations. They have the authority of his word, which is not always assumed by many evangelicals. They don't assume the authority of the word. They don't submit themselves to the authority of the word. I'll share some of the statistics of the most recent survey that, that point that out. There's a need that we have to bend the knee before the Lord and his word. And as we go out, there will be opposition. There was opposition to Jesus. There was opposition to John the Baptist. There was opposition to the apostles and the disciples. There's been opposition throughout church history. There will be opposition to us. And we're going to get a lesson in that right away in the next couple of passages where Jesus prayed, chooses these men, sends them out. Opposition begins. It should be expected. So our goal then is to get ready for it because it has been the normal reality of the church for 20 centuries. But before we get to that passage, as we continue to ponder the ones we have today, what are some lessons we can take home? Well, because Jesus did not flinch in the face of opposition, in him we can stand firm in, the, in our gospel service today. As he stood firm for us, purchased us, redeemed us, and sends us out, he empowers us to stand firm in gospel ministry. Secondly, because Jesus has compassion for people, we ask him to increase our compassion for those around us. I join you in praying that way, that my compassion would grow, that my desire to see people brought to Christ would grow, that my heart would not be hardened towards those that are around me. Thirdly, because Jesus is the good shepherd, we will follow his example as we help others grow in their faith in the Lord. He shepherded people. He cared for them. He tended to them. He taught them. He led them. He lived with them. And he says, follow me. And he will lead us to do the same in the lives of others. Lastly, we're going to wear some spiritual bifocals here. We're going to look through the lower lens and we're going to see the needs that are all around us. And we're going to say, Lord, I'm here. Use me for your glory. But we do need to look into the upper lens and look out onto the horizon and see that so many in the world today do not know Christ without a witness. And we will pray that the Lord raises up laborers for the harvest fields of Israel. Let us pray. To you, O Lord, we turn. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the passion that he had for you and your glory and your kingdom and the compassion that he had for us. And that he called us and he redeemed us and he set us apart for service. Father, forgive us for those times that we have taken our eyes off of what is truly important and placed it in other places. And as you lead us to repent from those things that we need to turn from that are taking energy away from our hearts and activity from our minds, we want to turn back to you and say, God, give us eyes to see people as you see them. Give us hearts to love people as you love them. Give us hands to help people as you help them. And so we turn to you and we thank you that yes, The needs of the harvest field are great, but our God is greater still. And we look forward to the day when those harvest fields will come in. 
and we will gather around your throne and glorify your holy name forever and be amazed that we will be among that matchless company. Thank you for your grace, God. In Jesus' name.